Hi, welcome to the Mama Advocate Podcast. This is a safe place for adoptive and special needs mamas to feel less alone and find community amidst their unconventional journeys. Here, you're going to find authentic conversations for me and my guest who are parenting fully in the weeds with you. Our goal is to empower and encourage you to be the best mama you can be as you advocate for your people. Hello, everybody. I'm so excited to have Dr. Miranda here with us today. I think this is going to be such a fun episode. Um, He is studying at the greatest university in the whole world, Texas A&M University. I do say so myself. It's I actually found out today that we, I, when I was there, when I graduated, you were there. Um, you started working there in 1995, and I graduated in 2004. And so, it's taking everything in me not to whoop right now. Um, all this to say, I am such a big fan of yours, simply because you're an Aggie and because of the amazing work that you're doing. So, um, can you kind of tell everybody a little bit about what you do, and I guess your specialty? in your area of research? I I probably should start off by saying that uh, uh, though I'm a professor at Texas A&M University, here I'm speaking uh, to you uh, uh, for myself and anything I say does uh, does not necessarily represent the views uh, uh, and positions of Texas A&M University. Uh, I'm just speaking for myself. But uh, uh, at the university, I'm... uh, professor of neuroscience, uh, but I teach all kinds of things. I teach uh, medical students, uh, organ structure, graduate students, cell and molecular biology. And then I run a research uh, laboratory where I focus on the uh, uh, issues that arise out of uh, the intersections between uh, alcohol and substance use disorders and pregnancy. I'm very interested in um, uh, understanding uh, why uh, 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 drugs that are very commonly used like alcohol, nicotine, marijuana can have such huge effects on uh, the uh, on pregnancy outcomes, on child development, and then persist, their effects persist into even aging. It is fascinating. Um, I wanted to have you on because I wanted to kind of talk about addiction and then how that affects not only our kids as they're in utero, but then mm-hmm. also moving forward, like how that affects them and their propensity to be addicted to things. Right, sure, yes. Um, so uh, addiction is a huge uh, question and a huge issue, and it's, it's something that is far more common in society than we would imagine or like to believe. And my take on it is that really it is the flip side of the coin of mental health problems. And uh, uh, humans, when we experience depression and anxiety and any host of other mental health issues, are good pharmacologists. And we seek uh, drugs that will help us with these uh, uh, issues. And they do. The, the reality is that alcohol, nicotine, marijuana, are very good at at managing mental health status as uh, uh, states. The big problem with these and and most other psychoactive drugs is that the uh, individual who starts using it, some individuals who start using uh, these drugs, it can experience something called tolerance, where they need more to consume more and more of the substance to produce the same effect. 
And the flip side of tolerance is something called dependence, where now instead of using it just because you want to use it, you use a drug because you have to use it. And with tolerance and dependence, the unfortunate thing is that you used to be, be uh, to, you started out by using the drug to make you feel better. But as you become tolerant and dependent on the drug, you start to have to take it so that you don't feel worse. And this is a big flip in, in uh, the ac actions of these substances and why they're so dangerous. And so then in that case, it becomes extremely hard to give up a, 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 a psychoactive drug like alcohol or nicotine. Uh, because when you give it up, it's highly, highly aversive, painful. You can experience uh, psychological reactions, but also physical reactions, including convulsions and maybe even death. So I, I just wanted to place that out as a context that, that these drugs are real drugs that have uh, biochemical, molecular, genetic effects on systems like the brain. And that it just it's not easy to give them up. And so that, that, that is the face of addiction. And so when we get to um, a period of time like pregnancy, for example, it becomes very hard to tell somebody just say no without additional support mechanisms, psychological help, uh, you know, social networks, all that kind of thing that can uh, be useful in curtailing addictions has to be present in that context. And if they're not present, it's not reasonable to just to, to expect somebody to uh, say no and to, to um, engage in cessation. Um, yeah, thank you for saying that. I think that it is such a bigger picture than, you know, we have our, our three that were adopted and have FASD, um, which is fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. And my goodness, it's easy to just have these kids that have all these issues and have all these hardships and behavior and all these problems. Um, and to then be mad at the mom for drinking during pregnancy, like that's a real easy place to go. And I, I think just my father was an alcoholic. And so, um, I have a lot of empathy for those who struggle with addiction. And I think that that's a real important piece that's missing a lot of times. And I think that having that empathy for those who are addicted can help lift that stigma and allow us to start talking about FASD more freely yeah. in our society as a whole and um, really be able to get people the help that they need. Stigma is a really uh, important barrier to uh, making progress and treatment of persons with uh, an addiction, as well as uh, uh, a child with an FASD. Uh, the stigma tends to spread from parent to the child unfortunately and and it doesn't help in either case it's it's not it's it's a real barrier to making progress okay so i have a question so i feel a little silly talking to you because i feel like your brain is so smart and mine is like i don't really know what this means um, <laughs> but in reading through some of your studies i read over and over again about the rna mm -hmm. um which I make up is different than DNA simply because it has different letters, but I don't know what that is and how it's, how it's changed. Like I read that the alcohol can actually change the structure of the RNA. Can you explain that to me in the most layman's terms possible? And then does that RNA then get passed down to the kiddos? Okay. This is going to get very arcane and I hope it uh, you just pull me back to reality if it does. 
So uh, most of you probably know that uh, DNA is present in the nucleus of the cell, and you might look at it as a library of recipes, for example, like a library of recipe books. How do you go and do something? But you can't go and do something directly. You have to uh, transcribe the contents of that library into a working copy. That working copy is called ribonucleic acid or RNA. And then that RNA can be used as a template to do things that are important for the cell. Like you might have heard, make proteins, for example, that, that RNA gets translated into proteins. Uh, for a long time, we did not understand that actually that fate of DNA giving rise to RNA giving rise to protein is true for only about 2 to 8% of the trans RNAs that are made by any cell. More than 90% of the RNAs made by any cell never get made into proteins. And we used to think of them as junk, not that long ago, as, uh, 25 years ago, maybe. But we've slowly started to realize with increasing uh, you know, uh, certainty that these are biologically active molecules. The moment they are transcribed from the DNA, they become active. And they can essentially, they are like a parallel universe in a cell. They can do essentially everything that a, a protein can do. And what's more is they are biologically and evolutionary very, very ancient. So these were, uh, these were molecules that were actually created in early life and continue to be created uh, in, in uh, life as we know it today. Also, they tend to be uh, able to adapt evolutionary so that, for example, humans like you and I will have RNAs that even our nearest uh, um, evolutionary ancestors or neighbors, like chimpanzees, for example, do not have. And a lot of times, these unique RNAs that are human-specific are expressed in a couple of different places. They're expressed in brain. So our, our human brain uh, exploits a lot of these very, very novel RNAs. But they're also expressed during development uh, the, uh, of the embryo into the fetus. The other thing that we didn't know, we used to think of these RNAs as being essentially intracellular actors. That is, the cell transcribed them from DNA and then use them within the cell. Only about maybe 12 years ago, we started to discover that these RNAs could actually be secreted by cells and be taken up by other cells. So what that meant is that these RNAs could actually be endocrine molecules, just like a hormone like cortisol is released by a cell, uh, an endocrine cell and taken up by another cell and it has important biology. These RNAs could have the same fate we're in a very, very immature stage with this biology. It's really novel biology. But the fact that RNAs could be endocrine molecules means two things. One is that we can use them for diagnoses to predict health outcomes, just like you would go to a doctor and get a hormone panel. And you could say your thyroid hormone level is low, you know, your, 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 uh, you know, any, any cortisol levels are high. You can do the same thing for these RNAs that are secreted by cells into body fluids like blood. And it is turning out to be true across a whole range of human health and disease, cardiovascular disease, neurological diseases, cancer, uh, and developmental uh, disabilities, that these RNAs have predictive value because they're secreted by cells in response to the stress that the cells experience, whether it be cancer in that uh, region or something else. 
And so they are reporters of the state of the health of the organism. And so we can use that, uh, the, the secreted RNAs as, as um, a reporter for uh, uh, the state of an organism. We can also the, make use these RNAs to predict how the organism will perform. So how a child might perform uh, in terms of a stress test or something like that, maybe, or uh, in terms of uh, some you know, metabolism of, of, uh, of sugars, things like that. But we could also do that, we think, in terms of predicting uh, uh, things like uh, uh, very complex things like school performance. We don't know if this is true as yet, but that's the hypothesis. The second thing that comes out of these things is just as you would, uh, if your doctor said, well, you just have low thyroid hormone levels, we will give you a thyroid hormone supplementation, right? Um, if these are true endocrine molecules, then we should be able to supplement if we know uh, that an individual is deficient in a, this key RNA that's secreted, we should be able to add it in as a drug and, and help uh, attenu or decrease the disease burden or help uh, improve health. So I know it's kind of a weird uh, thing and I, I apologize if it got complex, but this is- this is No, I love it. Okay, so let me just do a little speaker listener here. If what I heard you say is our DNA is in copy to RNA, and it may or may not be like lead to a protein, but it does, it is like an endocrine. <laughs> Hold on. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Okay. Then we can like read things like developmental disabilities in blood work. Mm -hmm. This is like, so this is. I'm like, I've gone to like millions of doctors and that's what I want right there is I'm like wanting somebody to tell me like, oh yes, I think that they will be delayed here. And I think that this would work here. And oh my goodness, like this sounds like the best news I've ever heard of my whole. Yes. Um, uh, we have to be very wow. cautious though, because just think of the situation with us knowing something about cortisol in the 1940s, for example, right. Or thyroid hormone 60 years ago, 80 years ago. Uh, we did not have the knowledge base to be sure of what we were saying. Mm -hmm. We don't view this whole area of RNA-based endocrinology in that same, we're in that same time frame. We're so early on that there is promise, but we have to be s extremely cautious not to oversell it. Uh, and, but at the same time, as, as scientists, we have to investigate it. Um, I'm, I promise I won't oversell it other than what I just did right there. And I'll leave that caveat right there. <laughs> um, but it does just sound very like that's what we're looking for. That's amazing. It's a paradigm shift. If this, again, we have to always preface, if this yes. is true, then it is a real paradigm shift in biology because there is a, there was a, there's a dark signal that we have ignored for decades that actually is a really important layer of regulation in all cells and tissues that is uh, uh, particularly um, responsive to the environment. Like for example, if you ingest alcohol or something like that, and then regulates the health of tissues and organs. So as a side note, I know this is not related to alcohol, but just stress levels and trauma and all of that, does that fall in the RNA 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Stress uh, is a big uh, regulator of uh, this layer of, of uh, biology. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And then just like DNA is passed down, that RNA can be passed down as well. So that gets a little complicated. Okay. Um, uh, there is a direct route to passage. Uh, so at the, ver the very primordial germ cells that we're born with from, the male sperm and the female ovum have a complement of these RNAs. We, 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 in, the, in the field, we refer to these as non-protein coding RNAs or non-coding RNAs. Mm -hmm. These regulatory RNAs or non-coding RNAs are present both in the sperm and in the oocyte. And upon fertilization, that complement of RNAs is mixed together and is thought to be really important for programming the early uh, fate of the developing embryo at least until uh, the, uh, uh, the the eight eight or you know something st uh, cell stage. Don't hold me to that. But uh, but for a fair, fairly long period of time, that initial complement of non-protein coding RNAs is able to directly affect the next generation. Beyond that, uh, there is a, a more complex biology. I told you that uh, these RNAs are now thought to do anything that proteins can do. One of the things that they can do is participate in how the DNA gets read. And if you think about it, uh, you know our our nuclei are really tiny, right? And so uh, this huge piece of information that's present in the nuclei is uh, has got to be folded and compacted, otherwise it won't fit. And and it and so, and so uh, the the cell has this amazing machinery to compact the DNA and then to unwind it as needed, read it, and then compact it again. There are some parts of the library, so if you think of DNA as a library, there are some parts of a library that a cell will, a cell will never lead, need. So a neuron, for example, will need some instructions from that library, but will not need the instructions to make it a, a skin cell, for example. So a skin cell will have a, sep, a, a somewhat different set of instructions. So the skin cell will permanently shut down some regions of the library that have to do with making a neuron. And the neuron vice versa will do that for the skin cells. And then some will be opened and closed as needed. That process of, of how the library gets reorganized in every cell is something we call epigenetics. And epigenetics uh, is regulated by these non-coding RNAs. So these non-coding RNAs actually can choreograph how that protein, uh, how proteins access that region of the DNA to get it to, to read. So epigenetics can be transmitted from generation to the next, one generation to the next. And we know in animal models of prenatal alcohol exposure that you can see this transmission to at least the fourth generation. So an experience that was in generation zero can go on to generation one, two, three. And again, I apologize if this is, it sounds weird, but this is a really new, amazing science. It is amazing. It's, I'm like amazed that y'all can study that and figure that out. Like that is amazing to me. Yeah, it takes a lot of people, a lot of scientists from different domains uh, helping each other. So this is this is uh, not the book of any one person, a few people. It's very humble of you to say. Um, okay, so I, 
as you just said, eye makeup that y'all do studies on animals. Are there also, do you have people come into the clinic who have some form of an FASD or are there studies with real live individuals? Mm -hmm. What so, does that look like? Um, I uh, should preface by saying that uh, uh, fundamentally I'm an animal biologist, but I, I really uh, love to know that my work is useful or find ways to make uh, make uh, sure that my work is useful. So I collaborate very extensively with uh, people who do work with human populations, both uh, with uh, women who are pregnant, persons who are pregnant, uh, as well as children with developmental disabilities and adults with developmental disabilities with FASD. And so one of the things that I've realized is that you cannot be an expert in everything. There's no way, but you have to learn to, to collaborate and trust people and trust their expertise. So I have no experience with, uh, for example, psychological assessments or pregnancy health, you know, so uh, I trust the experience of OBGYNs and psychologists and a whole network of people to be able to study human uh, uh, populations and 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 then to carry the work that we do in animals into human populations. So yes, uh, I'm a, I consider myself a bit player and and a part of a team, uh, but I love being part of teams and and being able to do the science I would not be able to do by myself. You get to choose what you go and study next. Yes, or yes. is it okay within the constraints of having evidentiary uh, support. <laughs> Right. And so uh, the evidence often comes from uh, uh, from model systems like animal models. And you find that there is uh, that you uh, that you can do a study and and create an outcome. And now you want to ask, is that only true of a mouse or a rat or a monkey or or do humans also experience similar outcomes? And so now it's a hypothesis based jump. From uh, from animals to humans, but within the constraints of that, you now you have the freedom to ask. So the whole area of non-coding RNAs is 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 so arcane that just uh, you know transferring it to studies in human populations is amazing. But it takes you know people worked in worms first, for example, to show that something was possible, and then mice and rats and such, and then humans. Never heard anybody studying worms before. Worms are an amazing model because we uh, there are worm species where people know every single cell in the worm and its fate and can tell you what cell is going to become what. And that huh. is something you, we just don't have for humans. That's amazing. Um, can you tell us what you're working on now? Oh, um, so uh, a lot of different projects in our research group. We are continuing to work on the uh, these endocrine RNAs that I talked about that's that's a big part. Uh, uh, we uh, think we're identifying uh, patterns of changes in these endocrine RNAs that are predictive of of future outcomes. Uh, and in this iteration, we are planning to uh, work with adults with the diagnosis of FASD. Uh, to um, uh, see whether these mo molecules can predict health outcomes like diabetes or heart disease or things like that as well. 
because I think that uh, FASD is not just a brain-based dis disability. It's a whole body disability that plays out in, you know, cardiovascular, musculoskeletal, uh, you know, uh, endocrine, all of these domains, gastrointestinal, and we have not paid a whole lot of attention as a research community to non-brain, uh, uh, you know, uh, health uh, problem uh, associated problems with uh, FASD, and so I'm very interested in that. Um, the, uh, we're we're interested in early fetal programming as well. Uh, I'm I'm particularly interested. So a part of our group is interested in the the uh, early neural stem cells that create the brain. And during the uh, mid first trimester in humans to the end of the second trimester is when most neurons of the adult brain are made. Uh, and then second to third trimester is when most of the support glial cells are made. And during that time, then what these are not real neurons in the first to second trimester. They they but they're the like what you might call proto-neurons, and then they start forming connections and things like that, and that goes on through the third trimester into uh, all the way through your lifespan. But you know, the, um, the uh, uh, how uh, how a stem cell decides to whether it's going to make a neuron or not is a really important basic science question, but it has fundamental consequences for how the, the fetal brain is going to respond to. Uh, um, uh, 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 an environmental change like like exposure to alcohol. And so we're very interested in in just how this uh, how the fate of stem cells gets determined. Again, uh, we think a lot of this uh, determination occurs in the context of non-protein coding RNAs. Um, uh, they, they, uh, I'm pretty convinced that they have a, a outsized role in regulating choice points. Uh, so that's one area. I'm very interested in placental development. So a group of my, one of some of my group are studying uh, how placental trophoblasts behave and uh, the RNAs that they secrete and things like that. Um, uh, yes. What is what is trophoblast? Am yeah, I even I'm saying that so correct? Sorry. What does that work? So the the principal fetal cell that lines uh, a structure that we call the chorionic villi. You might think of them as little peg-like structures that, that are dipped into maternal blood. They serve as, as a, 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 a way for the fetus to absorb nutrition and exchange material with, with mom. So there's a, in, in, the, in the placenta, there's a big maternal blood space where blood from the mom comes in. And then you have these, these uh, finger-like projections that are the chorionic villi. Each chorionic villi is lined by a, a, a cell type that is called a trophoblast cell. And these trophoblast cells, they actually form a, a continuum. People refer to these as a syncytium or a syncytia trophoblast. But anyway, they're the principal fetal cell that is facing the mom. And it's where all the action is. They are a highly endocrine cell. They secrete a lot of important hormones that control the mom's immune system, the mom's endocrine system. So uh, the, the fact that the mom doesn't outright reject the fetus, uh, because you know half the fetus comes from dad, and you know half the fetal genome comes from dad and should be seen as foreign, but it doesn't. So uh, the, the these trophoblast cells play a really important role in saying, "Hey, don't eat, don't kill me." You know, I'm, I'm, I'm. You know, I, I'm here, but I can survive. 
so uh, we're uh, obviously because th these are facing the mom, they're really critical for for fetal growth, right? And so if they don't do well, the fetus won't do well. Uh, pregnancy won't progress well. But if they do well, then they can support the, the fetus. And the, the fetus spends an enormous amount of the support on the development of the brain. So the, the placenta and the brain are kind of, you know, tied, the fates are tied to each other. So I'm very interested in that. That is interesting. I feel like I need to go take biology again and kind of relearn all these things. I'm like, I didn't learn that during any of my pregnancies. No one ever told me that word, so... <laughs> Uh, I, I, it, yeah, it's it's not. I mean, I, I again, it's uh, jargon that. Uh, so I'm glad you stopped me. But it's so fascinating. It's so fascinating. Oh my goodness. Well, I'm so grateful for you coming on and just telling us about what you're doing and what you're studying and how um, you are using your brilliance to further knowledge and studies in FASD. I think that is so so important, and I'm really grateful for you and your work. Thank you. I appreciate that. Hey, I'm so glad that you joined us today. If this episode blessed you at all, would you mind leaving a review or sharing with others? This, as you know, will help other mamas find us and in turn will bless them. Hey, thanks so much for trusting us with your time today.